Hello and thank you for joining us for episode 3 of Project Cast where we interview project managers about their experiences in the field of project management. Today we will be interviewing Sheila McNerney from Manchester City Council who has a wide range of experience across both public and private sector and will be sharing some of her insights with us today. We hope you enjoy. So um, thank you for agreeing to be interviewed today, Sheila. Um, I know initially you trained in architecture. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about how that led you into working in project management, please? Okay. Um, I'll just correct a few things there, if you don't mind, Lorna. So I originally trained as a town planner. Um, A lot of people who are town planners are frustrated architects and often spend time working with architects. But... It's actually against the law to call yourself an architect unless you actually are. Um, So, yeah, um, I trained to be a town planner um, in the mid and mid 1980s, which is a very, very long time ago. And you probably know that town planning has its own kind of professional body and its professional process. Project management as a professional activity didn't exist at that time, I would say. in terms of the sorts of work that I've done in public and private sector, often involved in the built environment, often involved in development, investment, and then I've worked with the construction companies and I've worked with architecture companies and I've set up an architecture business and closed it down. So I would say project management really came onto my radar when I still worked in the public sector way back in the late 1990s. And it was an aspect of how we work to define our projects and define expenditure. I was actually working in Bolton Council at the time, and there were a lot of government initiatives at that time um, that brought in additional funds, and there was there was a discipline of project management that was basically invented, and it was brought from the United States, you know, so the states um, had developed this approach to project management that was very rational, very formulaic and allowed to see where decisions are made in the process and when you start spending money, basically where the beginning, middle and end of a project is. And I was that was still very early days in my career and I'd moved out of town planning. My first job was in Cheshire County Council, then I moved to Bolton and it was at that time that a number of things kind of came together. So I started working in regeneration. There was a lot of government funding about. And there was this new, it was a way of working. And it was a discipline that was, that came with the funding. So I'd say it was around about that time in the mid, mid 1990s that project management developed in practice and then I'd say since then has developed further into its own professional uh, with its own professionals kind of approach which is I guess why you're all involved in looking at project management as a discipline in its own right and how it's applied to different different types of projects but my experience is in the built environment. Um, Great thank you. how do you deal with uh, failures because that's quite a big a a big thing in project management you're taking on a lot of responsibility and when things fall down how how do you deal with that I could I could talk about that in general I can think of different examples but I think it's it's another way that I think 
a disciplined project management approach to your project allows you to have done a risk assessment at the beginning. It allows you to have appraised different options. So the, you know, the theory is that you've got a management system that allows you to see where the risks are, um, maybe then mitigate them. And then as you're going through the project, I think one of the other really important parts of project management in my experience is to have the decision making and reporting in the right places. So right at the very, very beginning, you've got senior responsible officers. You've got, again, it's just being clear about who's in charge. Um, so I think I certainly have got all sorts of examples of projects that have been problematic um, and then you solve problems and push them forward. In terms of how you handle failure, I mean, failure is quite a big word, isn't it? You know, I suppose it's sometimes you don't know till the end that some of the failures might have taken you in a different direction. and It's just the project has changed. Um, but there are most certainly failures in, in the built environment. Um, there might be projects that spend a very long time in planning, get designed, people are appointed to do things, and then things can happen. There might be external factors, you know, because, again, there's that discipline of understanding the things within your control in a project, and then there's other things out with. But the things out of your control might be the things that really ultimately decide failure and success, you know, like availability of funding or... Um, politics or world events or the economy um, so projects can be a long time in the planning and then never actually come about so I can think of quite a lot of projects in the past that a lot of time and money was spent on but they've never actually been delivered um, but I think I think there are ways of learning from those types of projects as well. So I think that all the best practice learns from failures. There's no point, you know, there, there is a chance to, you learn from best practice, but actually your biggest learnings are from failures. So what went wrong? I was always really interested in construction, architecture and building, because it's the one bit of the process I couldn't do myself. You know, and it's like you, you need so much expertise. It's an amazing thing for a building to be built when you think about all the things that go into it. And then I got quite interested years ago in, you know, why do buildings fall down? Why do things go wrong? What is a failure in the building industry? And again, there are some very dramatic, terrible examples of that. And then there are some very ordinary, mundane things. And the lessons to be learned from those failures are massively important to engineers and designers. Um, and the number one failing is always human. So it's always human error. Um, and again, that brings me to other thoughts about project management, project management systems. They can't, they can't um, mitigate against everything, you know, so Again, it's a kind of human condition. I think things do go wrong and it's kind of how you respond to that. And then the other thing I, I keep repeating and I'll probably say it again in this, um, it's always about people. So I was telling Lorna many years ago, I'd written a project management book, booklet, um, and I've used a lot of project management systems and I've introduced new systems into Salford Council some years ago and others. And 
it doesn't matter. You can always point you. I bet you can find the project management system or the print prints too, and all the rest of it. There's the booklet somewhere on the internet, but it's how it's used, and it's it's who the people are, um, and it doesn't guarantee success. <laughs> you know, it's kind of just dealing with realities. I can carry on talking about anything until you stop me. So honestly. <laughs> Well, what I was just going to go on to is with what you've said, you've mentioned human error and people. Is one of the common problems that arises in project management a lack of the discipline documentation? And is that the knock on effect that that's where some projects do encounter problems? Because not everybody is. It depends. I'd say it depends what type of project you're talking about. And I would imagine, I mean, I know that in the construction industry in the built environment industry there is the most enormous amount of documentation you know so the project management is embedded in the whole process whatever bits you're looking at it and I'd say the opposite of what you're saying really I'd say that the documentation and I think the processes and procedures are very strong and are very evident in the industry that I know there are some very well-known absolute catastrophes where certain things have gone wrong um, and there are big implications in the building industry if things go wrong you know you only have to look at Grenfell or other there are others about building disasters as well it's not just that one so there's a lot at stake if things go wrong there might be other types of sectors or where people are using project management systems where if something goes wrong there isn't quite so much at stake so I'd say it's not so much that more documentation is needed. I think it's there's more communication and human input and understanding of working relationships and the relationships that is needed. And I don't, I this is my personal view. I don't believe that more documentation will solve problems on its own. I think more communication will. Um, and that's, I think that's um, yeah. a really common theme from everybody yeah. that we have spoke to on this podcast. A lot of them have mentioned the relationships, the yeah. communication, like and all of mm. that. If you have that really, really strong, the documentation almost isn't as important mm. when you're getting the project done. Mm. So, mm. yeah, that's really interesting. H- how do you deal with problem stakeholders? I'm only grinning to myself because... I have a number of them who are problems at the moment. Well, again, I think it just so much comes back to communication and continuing to have clear dialogues, you know, where there are problems, understanding whose problem it is, understanding if this, if it's the stakeholder, you know, you kind of think there's a set of problems here. This is causing us problems. What do we do about this? It's, I think you have to spend some time in their shoes. What is their objective? What is it that they're not getting? They they want something and they're not getting what they want. And why why is it that they want this thing to happen in this way? So I think, again, all of that is about relationships and human beings working together. And I think in different professions, Somebody, some academic somewhere must have studied this, you know, the kind of, there can be a problem of different egos, different professional expectations about how things work, expertise. And once you've understood all of that, there is still an issue, there's still some issue. And 
it's you, you have to just keep talking till it's solved. That's what I've found. I think once people basically take the book, there isn't a chapter in the in the book about taking your ball home, you know. But there is a. It's like at some point, if if somebody decides they're not cooperating much or they're not engaging, or that is the worst scenario. I think. I think as long as you're continuing communication and the lines are still open then there's a route through to solve problems. And I think so dealing with problem stakeholders is to stay engaged, I'd say, which can be very challenging at times. Yeah, I think we've all encountered scenarios within every project where that is a problem. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. When starting a new project, what are your top priorities? All of it. All of it's priority. Well, I can... Depending on the type of project or the scale of the project, then for me, the starting point is the governance and just, you know, who's who, who's in charge, who's making this happen, who wants it to happen, who are these stakeholders, what what is it we're trying to achieve. So governance around whatever the vision is or the objectives. And then um, the other key aspects for me is everything around what we mean by risk. And, and again, risk assessments and understanding risk, I think, is um, is often not necessarily understood in the same way by different professionals or by different groups of stakeholders. So, you know, even the word risk is too risky <laughs> for some people, whereas I think it's better to get all the risks out on the table. And certainly in the built environment, you know, the risk register is an absolutely essential tool from the beginning. And every at the beginning of a project, it's like everything appears as a risk. And what you're doing is working through that process to mitigate those risks. So I'd say they're the headlines for me is it's the governance, decision making, objectives, bringing people together. So you kind of know what your direction of travel is and what you're trying to achieve. And then once you've all signed up to that, it's then understanding the risks and whose risks they are. Because, again, different groups of people, different groups of people can have, can bear the risk more than others. I spend a lot of time at the moment discussing that, Um, you know, because I work for Manchester City Council. The public sector at the moment bear the risks. They hold the risk for a lot um, in my world. It's interesting you say about risk because um, mm. in my experience, we've done risk assessments at the, at the beginning, well, mm. or risk matrix, yeah. and then it's just left. Yeah. It's never looked again exactly. throughout the whole of the project. And it's just like, it's, it's as though it's a paper ticking exercise. Oh, yeah. we've got a risk, risk, risk register over there. But it's never, never yeah. reviewed, never gone back to. It's never got to be reviewed re- and managed, yeah. yeah. It's got to be reviewed and managed, Carl. um, What I learned in construction, because that, you know, if you'd interviewed me like 15 years ago, I would have maybe had a different sense of things. But what I learned in construction is the importance of the risk register and the cost. And also what what contractors do is they cost the risk. So this risk is X. And if it happens, it's going to cost somebody five million pounds. The other thing is who's going to have to pay. So who owns the risk? And. It's a very interesting discipline to do that. I mean, you just reminded me, actually, I remember reading not so long ago some of the reports on COVID and all that sort of stuff that happened. And the risk of a global pandemic was on was on like the national risk register. Um, (laughs) 
I've gone from one extreme to the other now, but you know what I mean? It's like, it's yeah. an interesting phenomena, isn't it? That's something so devastating was on risk registers. And I can think of ordinary things that can go wrong on my sort of projects. And I mean, we had one quite recently, actually, which is the same thing. Like the risk sat on the risk register, but it was expected that the risk would be mitigated. And then we got to a certain stage and it turned out that this was a massive risk. You know what I mean? And it wasn't yeah. getting mitigated. So it's, yeah, kind of having it as a live document and analysing yeah. it is really important. So I know the other day when we were talking a little bit, you were telling me a little bit about your experiences of how project management's changed over the years. Mm. And um, I know you touched on it a little bit at the beginning, mm. but could you just tell us a little bit more about mm. how in your experience it's yeah. changed? So I think the headline, because there's a lot to say about this, but for today and just that headline, I think, as I said, project management has been professionalized so you can do a degree in project management so when I first became a town planner and mid to late 80s started working Cheshire County Council then and then this notion of project management was introduced and it was more like a kind of management tool and a way of doing things that came with the funding so it came with the government funding and it was central government saying to local government at that time we don't think you manage things very well and we've got this fandangled new way of doing things called project management and program management. And and there were booklets and books and there were systems. And, and again, this is before um, officers had computers on the desks, you know, so it was a it was a, like a paper exercise. So I suppose, first of all, it didn't exist. Then when it did exist, it was a loose management arrangement, not a professionalized approach. And it was also not embedded within IT. And I think when IT came along and this, again, when you could, you know, when I first came to Manchester City Council in 96, sorry, 97, this way of working with this type of funding had been embedded. But it was still basically paper based. So, you know, to access the money, everybody had to do a project appraisal. We scored the project appraisals like we marked their homework and said, "Oh, we don't like the way you've answered your option appraisal. We don't think you've, you, I don't, I don't, we don't think you've set out what your exit strategy should be." And we became like gatekeepers to everybody's money, which was great. Um, and the project management system was our like evidence base for making decisions. So I, th I think those things that have changed are IT. And it's almost like project management benefited massively from the growth in IT and um, moved away from being a paper exercise, professionalization of it. And then what I'd say in my experience within the built environment, um, I mentioned this to you when we were chatting, Lorna, that, that, you know, if you're going to build a building, you need an architect, you need an engineer, you need to get planning consent you need somebody with the money who pays for it you know so you've got all these people in the room and increasingly in the built environment there are there are dozens and dozens of specialists who all now need to be in the room it used to be that there was just an architect on their own you know but now you need um experts in ecology experts in 
every aspect of the built environment, you know, um, noise, and you've got all these experts. And again, it used to be that the architect was the lead consultant and instructed everybody. And then when project management was developed and invented, there was then this other person called a project manager who arrived in the room. And the project manager was leading the whole process and started telling the architect what they had to do. Well, and there are many architects who have still to this day never accepted that, you know. Um, so, And I have saw some of that play out over the years as the the team of people you need in the room to get building done um, shifted like a power base um, from one profession to another. I mean, at the end of the day, really, it's the client for the piece of work who should be dictating and telling everyone what to do. But there are so many specialist and specialist aspects now and expertise needed. And also, you come back to that discussion we had about risk. The approach to risk in the industry is a real problem at the minute. And, you know, you kind of think who makes the decisions? Well, it's insurance companies, you know, so you've now got the insurance industry in the room saying that they won't underwrite this and they won't underwrite that. So, again, your project manager has got a lot. It's like being um, the conductor of a, something much bigger than an orchestra. You know, it's like there's so many different moving parts um, that a project manager has to deal with in the industry that I know. I mean, I'm just thinking about some of the projects got now. and You have project managers on on both sides. So if you know where we're if city council is working with a builder, then the builder has a project manager, all of their subcontractors have a project manager, and the council has a project manager who isn't necessarily really the project manager, you know, because the capital projects team have proper project managers as they call them, you know. Um and then so you've got now you've got not just a project manager in the design team and in the room, you might have four or five different project managers who all represent different bodies. So that's interesting. But they all speak the same language, so that's that's all right. <laughs> that was great, thank you. <laughs> so leading on from that, how do you deal with stress and responsibility? There have been times in the past when I haven't dealt with it very well, you know, so again I think once you've been involved with different projects and then you start looking back or looking back and looking forward and you kind of think through Ooh, what happened then, um, then I can think of times when stress felt quite overbearing. But then again, the for me, how I deal with it, and I think the solution to it is comes back to people and it comes back to teamwork and it comes back to open communication and Actually, you know, the project management systems done properly help with because I can remember working with a guy in the city council years ago, uh, 10 years ago more. um, And he was like he was fantastic. He never he wasn't my mentor and he wasn't called a mentor, but I did learn such a huge amount from him. And he was very experienced and he was very sharp about. The responsibility has to sit with those who are actually responsible. And sometimes project managers or individuals in the careers at certain times will think. I used when I was really young, I used to think my job was to be responsible for everything. <laughs> and and it's kind of people people encourage you in that and it but it's it's kind of counter 
it doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. And it's because it's about teamwork and it's about you can be a leader of something. It doesn't mean you're responsible for absolutely everything. So you have to put the responsibility in the right place for the right things. And I think project management helps with that. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I feel like, obviously, I feel like this group that we're talking in now, it we're all very conscientious people. Mm. And when you're very conscientious, you do try and take on a lot of feeling of, of I have to be responsible for this. I yeah. have to say, oh, I have to, I have to, I have to. And it's not always, you know, you've got the support of a great team there, usually, mm. don't you? Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Um, and, and you're right. You, 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 you trying not to trying not to believe that you're the only one. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I mean, there's there is because it's different. It's a different discussion, really, about leadership and stuff. But um, it's never one person. You know, even when with the successes, it's never one person. It's you know, yeah. there are a lot. If you look around the built environment, if you look at a building, and you kind of if you were to try and add up all the people responsible for it it would be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds running into thousands of people you know if you look at any iconic building in manchester you know like say look at the bridgewater hall when because i know about when that was first built and um you know hundreds and hundreds of people were involved in making that happen so the success of it is shared by everybody and then when things go wrong um there has to be a team approach to the responsibility as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's some of the wisest thing to say to younger people without being patronising. I don't mean to do that, but I learned a lot from people. They weren't necessarily that much older. They just had different experience, more experience. So finding the people who have got experiences of when things go wrong, who've got the scars, you know, and they say they're very clear. It's this thing. These things will go wrong and you've got to have responsibility sitting in the right places. And really strong leaders own up to their responsibility where they have to. So it's not down to, you know, um, a project manager in one part of the system. You know, it's a whole system. The other thing about the stress and responsibility when you're running something and you're wanting to deliver it conscientiously is, you know, being absolutely coldly realistic and rational about what can be done. So... You know, I said before, at the beginning, um, sometimes there can be egos or there can be negative human aspects that influence things. But the person who's really, really trying to impress, working really hard up till three in the morning every night, they're not going to be useful. You know, so it's like it's kind of recognizing that in not your, you know, but at times I was a bit like that. Not for very long, but I was a bit like that at certain times, you know what I mean? And I thought, you know, this is an indicator that it's not working. This is not an indicator that actually what I've got to do is work more. Um, and then it's how you kind of have those conversations where you need to have them. Yeah, and, and that I feel like that's a really easy trap to fall into as well, because mm. back to the mm. being conscientious, yeah. you do try really hard to, mm. you know, do more, do more than the other person, or, yeah. or do better than the other. You think you're trying mm. to do better than the other person, but actually you're not. You're not yeah. making things flow as yeah. well as they could. I've worked with alongside other very senior people in, say, the construction industry. I think working in a, constru a construction company is one of the most stressful jobs, and I've worked with a number of people 
just by definition happen to be blokes, you know, and um, kind of how they manage. And, you know, that there aren't any more hours in the day. So, you know, how we've learned to plan for getting projects delivered and doing the right things. You know, you look again, you look at any when you look at a really big construction site, you know, um, I know the, there's one in Liverpool. I don't, I don't know if you're into your football, but Everton Football Stadium is being built at the moment. And when I look at that, it's huge. And it's taken 20 years to plan for. And it's, you know, it's absolute, so many problems with it. But it's absolutely, you look at it and go, oh, my God, it's there. But the, the people who are working on that are working day and night, you know, day and night, day and night, day and night. And they'll have to stop. They'll have to have a rest when it comes down to it. Anyway, I digress. But, you know, um, it's the built environment stuff that I really love working around. Yeah. Right, Sheila. um, You've obviously worked across public and private sector. Is there any major differences between between both sectors in project management? I suppose if you think about it, the public sector side is usually the client effectively, you know. So many, many years ago, the public sector, say the council, used to directly build schools or if you're in the NHS, you know, the direct works used to directly build hospitals. So I suppose now that in my experience, my type of work, if you're in the public sector, then you're the client for the work. And you're going to appoint professionals and expertise and contractors or you, if it's not construction or built environment, it might be other things, but you're going to appoint people to do things. So the type of project management and the type of accountability, you know, and again, that word comes into it because when we talk about the public sector, I think of councils and government and elected politicians. So when I moved into the private sector, I thought, oh, thank God, I don't have to talk to any politicians again, um, except, my, you know, my clients did, you know, because I continued to work for councils. Um, but in terms of my day-to-day work and objectives, I was accountable to a board of directors. Um, not, you know, you didn't have to be accountable to politicians in a place you were working. So there's some of the things that I think shape the different types of project management that might be instilled in how things work. In terms of paperwork, is there much difference um, in both sectors? I think it's changed over time for both sectors. I think there's just different types of paperwork in each sector. I think it is still true that the public sector, by definition, is a bigger bureaucracy, so there is more paperwork. But in the private sector, there is paperwork of a different type and they don't call it bureaucracy. Um, they'll call it management um, or and it, the private sector world. The objective is it's well, the best of them. It's still all the good stuff to create something for the common good and all the rest of it. But it's ultimately driven by its finances. So. The bit in a project management system that talks about cost, which we haven't touched on yet, but cost is more to the forefront. 
Um, I'm not saying that the public sector don't have costs at the forefront, they do. But again, just the way things are at the moment, it's the public sector who are underwriting a lot of activity and the risk. So, yeah, um, I'd say it's not so much more or less, it's just different paperwork and different processes of accountability. And the one of the most powerful people in a private business is the accountant. You know, so, again, in a public sector project management team, you might not always have the financial person involved in any of the detail. So it's later, maybe at the beginning and the end. At the beginning to say, here's the money, and at the end to say, here's some more money. <laughs> I'm sure there's some other aspects in terms of the difference that it's worth commenting on, but I can't think of them all at the minute. This is a slightly fun question that we've asked everybody. If you could have been involved in one project over history, which project would it be and why? I think it'll be something kind of romantic, really, because because I do love architecture and buildings. And because um, in the current climate, we're not really like obviously Manchester are doing some some big things and we are doing some big things around the country, around the world. But we're not doing really big things, you know, so I think from I, I would like to have been involved in when Manchester Town Hall was first built and working with the architect who did what he liked and didn't have project managers in this case, you know. So I'd I'd kind of like to be involved in something that was really big in terms of building. And I think it's a shame we're not doing really big things, apart from Everton Football Club, of course. <laughs> <laughs> It were about to go bankrupt, so don't use that as a case study. We <laughs> <laughs> so mentioned right. uh, b before um, on one of the other questions about uh, people starting out or younger people mm. um, finding a mentor or someone yeah. to look up to to sort of gain a bit more experience. Is that one of the tips that you would have for upcoming project managers or people just starting out? I'd, I'd say generally that that's common sense and it, it might not, there were times when it wasn't formalised, you know, so I think it's human nature, when you start in any organisation, you're looking for people, you're thinking, oh, how did they get there? I like them or I don't like them, I don't want to be like them. Um, but yeah, I think, I think in whatever organisation you're in and whatever your role is and what you're doing, being able to work with people who have already done a lot is incredibly useful. And I don't think we're always that good at making that sort of communication happen, you know, Yeah. Um, yeah. or how you convey it. Because I think sometimes it just rubs off, you know, so you want to be around certain people and it's just going to rub off over time. And then other times it is useful to make it more formal, especially these days because people are so isolated at times in their work and since lockdowns and everything um there was a big issue wasn't it about young people coming into the workforce and actually never having met their colleagues which i just yeah. think is that is just a recipe for catastrophe over a long period of time so yeah maybe it needs to be formalized a lot more 
and for everybody, you know, it's about how you make it open and accessible. Not everybody is necessarily massively driven and competitive and pushing in. You know, sometimes it is just, you know, well, at this stage of my life, I'm I'm not going to be dead pushy, but I would like a mentor or... Yeah. yeah. Do, do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah. it happens a lot in our work. I think we people don't get the opportunity. I mean, it might be out there, but there is nobody to actually really go go up to those people or or there is no one to identify those people that could be a good match for something else or they see yeah. something in somebody else. Yeah. And they know yeah. that they can achieve quite yeah. you know, a lot. I think that is yeah. a real shame. I mean, I'm just very lucky that mm. I've had a manager who's been extremely supportive yeah. and really encouraged me to keep taking on other courses, keep trying yeah. to strive for something else because they've noticed that we've got an aging workforce and yeah. there is no new blood coming in that is yeah. going to be taking over or could be, you know, yeah. really useful to the council. So yeah. I think, I think that it's really, really is important to have those people. It is. Yeah, to hear yeah that it is. Yeah. For sure. And it's just that the mentors and then also the actual type of work being the, t- the, the sorts of experiences that you can actually learn from, you know, and it's such a hard life lesson, I think. Well, it was for me. Uh, maybe it's me, but it's such a hard life lesson to um, understand that a things do go wrong and when they're going wrong, there's a lot to learn. Yeah. It doesn't mean that everything has to keep keep going wrong. Because <laughs> <laughs> then that's a different issue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Final question then. What is the one question you'd wished we'd asked you? Really, I'm not sure. Not sure. I haven't struggled with any of your other questions. Um, is there any final tip then? It's always about people. It's always yeah, about brilliant. people. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. Thank you, thank Sheila. You. No, thank you thank very much. Yeah, thank yeah. you. So really much. enjoyable. Sadly, that's all we've got time for today. And that was also the final episode in this mini series of podcasts. We hope you've enjoyed listening to them as much as we've enjoyed making them. And we hope that they've been useful to you in some way. We'd like to say a massive thank you to all of our guests who've appeared on the podcast and to all of our listeners. We couldn't have done it without you all. Thank you. Bye.